Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University. With more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics, this product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They are passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from Fawn Paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular Top Score Extreme, they just flat out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks, and give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic wasting disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GEBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, NADAR numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy to find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy-to-find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is episode 77. We're at 77 today. We have a special guest in the studio today, Mr. George Barnett from Texas. George, how are you? Doing great, Josh. How are you today? I am doing really well. I appreciate you coming on, uh, and I want to dive into uh, all things uh, photography today uh, because it's something I'm interested in, and it's something that our our listeners are as well. Um, you know, I, I George and I met quite a few years ago uh, at, over a, a deer related call. We were talking about some health stuff and kind of sharing some stories, and uh, we've we've grown to be friends over the years. And I I I think he has a lot of interesting things to to share with us. And, you know, as I kind of dug into your past a little bit more, of course, uh, you got a couple years on me, um, you know, as, as far as time goes, and uh, you were there in the the early days of everything. I know that you've had more than 700 uh, featured uh, magazines, books, catalog covers, you work for companies like um, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's and ESPN, and the list goes on and on and on. What is it that um, you found drew you to photography? Obviously, I, I guess from a very young age. Tell, tell me that original, that original story that kind of captivated you into this. Well, when I was, was young, like you said, I, I'm quite a bit older than you. 
in back in the fifties, I lived in Oklahoma and North Texas, and there were really there were hardly any deer around at that time. This was uh, the, the time period in our our history with whitetails when the restocking programs were going on. And I, I lived down in uh, Clarksville, Texas, which was right on the Red River. My dad was the football coach. And uh, I, this is a, was an event that really, really had an impact on me. It was, we were having a, a Sunday breakfast after church. And uh, I was out playing in the front yard with some kids. And I saw this old car come up from a, a field uh, down below the houses. It was right on the edge of the country. Um, and this, uh, this man pulls up, just drives up in the yard in an old car. Uh, I guess it was a new car back then. Uh, and he runs into the house, you know, all excited and everything. And the kids are kind of looking like, you know, what's going on, you know. All the men come running out of the house, you know. And the guy runs up to the trunk and unlocks it, pulls the trunk open. And he had killed a, a really beautiful whitetail buck. And it was like, it was a big deal because... They just, no one ever killed a deer around there, you know, and everybody was all excited, you know, and I was, you know, the, the, the curious kid, you know, I was trying to get through the legs of everybody. I was only four years old and I finally got up there where I could see it and climbed up into the trunk of the car and sat on the deer and was just, uh, amazed, you know, by the animal. I had him by the antlers, you know, and I was counting points I could count when I was four and uh it just uh I was just mesmerized and so the the men got through talking and everything and uh it was time to go and so my dad you know said you know Georgie get out of the get out of the trunk you know and I wasn't going to have anything to do with that I was staying with the deer and I had him by the antlers and my dad had a hold of me trying to pry me loose you know and I wanted to count the points one more time. He had, the, the deer had 13 points. Mm. So he let me sit there, you know, and I went through and counted each of the points and I ran my hands up and down them and everything. And it, it just really made an impression on me. Uh, it was, it, to me, it was just the most beautiful animal in the world. And so after that, I, I just had this deal in my mind that, I wanted, I wanted to see one of these things in the wild because it, it had to be the most majestic thing, you know, in the world. So as we would drive around the countryside, uh, most people look, you know, down the street. I had my nose glued to the window looking out as we were driving through the countryside looking for a deer. Well, you just didn't see them. So I had a vivid imagination and I was like, I wonder what that deer would look like if he was standing over there. That's a, that's a real pretty spot right there. Or, mm. or I would, even at a very young age, I would notice light and that the, the light, you know, hitting things was real pretty early in the morning and the evening. And there might be a little spot lit up with a tree with autumn colors. And, and my imagination would be, you know, boy, he would look great standing there. Um, so this kind of became... A, a training for me over the years. Um, I, I still lived in areas where there weren't any deer, so I had to use my imagination a lot. And so I, d I don't know whether it was a, a God-given ability or 
something that I developed, but I began to uh, do what I would tell people about my photography. I would tell them I could, uh, I could see the picture before I took it. Uh, and I'm still that way today. Uh, when, when things are happening in the field, um, I, I can see the image I want to shoot as a deer approaches an area. Um, I see the image. I'm always ready, finger on the shutter. Um, and then as it begins to happen, I get the picture. A lot of people would say, you know, oh, well, you're really lucky. Well, I, I was lucky a lot because I was always looking through that viewfinder and, and my imagination always came into play as to what, what would this look like here? What would this look like there? Uh, and so I was probably, uh, we moved back up to Oklahoma and I, I, my dad loved to quail hunt mm. and I hunted and fished uh, since I was very, very young. I was always in the woods um, and I was always looking at the ground for a deer track, N never saw one ever. And then we moved out to Oregon and, and California. We were out there for several years, moved back to Texas, lived up in Dallas. Uh, but I never went down to South Texas where there were a lot of deer. Um, but I would go back up home, uh, which is up uh, around uh, Yale, Oklahoma, around Stillwater. Uh, my grandparents lived on the Cimarron River uh, and they had stocked white-tailed deer in that area. And this would have been, they probably did the stocking around 1965 or 66. And I remember being out one day, just uh, nosing around in the woods. I spent all my free time in the woods and I, I saw a deer track and it was like, you know, like, wow, there's a, there's a deer right up here where in the woods where I've grown up. And so I started hunting in that area and hunting kind of became my life from the time I was so let's say 16 to to 30, I went to Oklahoma for deer, the whole deer season. It was only nine or 10 days long. Mm. Um, and I just lived for that. But even when I was in, you know, on stand, the sun would come up and I would be looking around. And back then there, there still, there, there weren't very many deer. If you saw a buck, you better, you better get him right then because that was the only buck you were going to see during the season. You just didn't see a lot. So I would spend most of my free time still looking around and imagining, well, I wonder what he would look like if he walked out right over here, or, or man, that's a pretty spot right over there. And so even when I was hunting, I was training my mind to see uh, pictures. Um, and this went on, oh, I hunted, you know, that's all I did until I was up to about 30. Never owned a camera. <laughs> Never had any formal training whatsoever. Um, finally bought a camera uh, and kind of decided that uh, I'd like to, you know, try my hand at, at getting a picture of one of these great bucks. You know, I'd see them on the cover of Outdoor Life. Jerry Smith was my hero back then. He was really the 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 big guy in, in uh, uh, whitetail photography back in that time period. And so, uh, you know, that kind of became a, a new objective. I, I bought a, a, a real nice, a nice lens, not really what I needed. It was a Tamron 300. And I would go up to, a, 
uh, I, I found I did a lot of research and and reading as to you know where I might find a really big buck to photograph. And I heard some rumors about a place called the Hagerman National Wildlife Refuge. And uh, I came up, I, I live right down the street from the Hagerman now. I mean, uh, I've lived here about 20 years, uh, but I started my career here in, in 1986. Um, and the one of the first things that happened is I, I run into this big buck um, and I ended up photographing him, um, the second year after I found him, the, the first year he, he, I was just sitting down and let me give you just a little background on the Hagerman. It was a non-hunting area. It was a national wildlife refuge on Lake Texoma. And I, I tell people about this and they just don't believe me, but it was, it was nothing to go out and walk through the refuge and see anywhere from um, maybe on a bad day you may only see three or four Boone and Crockett bucks <laughs> and on a good day you might see a dozen of them. Wow. Uh, they they were thick uh, and they weren't Tex they weren't Texana subspecies. They were northern subspecies. <laughs> uh, the picture up on the, the screen you can you can tell from that buck that that is definitely not a Texanus subspecies. Uh, there were a lot of Borealis and Dakota subspecies in this area. Um, and so I, I stumbled over this buck one day. He, I was just sitting on the ground next to a tree and, and some does walked right past me over to the side. And I, I kind of glimpsed around, you know, and when I did, I, I saw something in my peripheral vision. And uh, so I knew there was another deer there. And I, mm. I so I kind of turned around real slow and I looked and he had gotten behind this big oak tree and he was peeking around the tree at me and I was peeking around my tree at him. <laughs> and I, I literally, this deer was so big, um, you know, in that time period. Now this is 1986. So, you know, everybody's used to seeing 300 point deer now and, and man, back then that just did not exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I couldn't even breathe. I, I think the deer thought I was having a heart attack and, and he got really curious about what was going on with me. And he, he finally walked out. Well, I finally got my senses about me and got my camera turned around and, um, I got a picture of him walking by me. He came by and walked right over in front of me and looked at me and, uh, got some more pictures of him. And then he turned around and and walked back and then the does got a little nervous about the situation and they ran off and he followed them and everything. So the next year, uh, I decided that, you know, I was, I was going to find this big guy and get a picture of him. And I spent about 10 weeks, uh, setting on this wheat field that I, I knew he would come to, uh, it was right in his core area. And a lot of the does went on that wheat field to, uh, to feed and everything. And finally, after about 10 weeks, and, and this was four hours in the morning, four hours in the evening, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I put myself on a four-day work week at school so that uh, I'd have three days for the photography. And after about 10 weeks, he walked out onto the field. And um, again, I, I, it was the first time I'd seen him that year. Um, and he walked out there and milled around a little bit. And finally, I mean, he knew I was there. I mean, I was well hid, but he, he was, he was obviously watching me. 
uh, or watching the camera. It was kind of stuck through the, the blind I had built there. And finally, he just ran over there in front of me. You know, it, it was, it, it, it almost seemed like, you know, God's hand grabbed him, moved him over there and turned him. And, um, and then I, the picture you see, I, I shot uh, that with a long, about maybe, I probably shot a hundred pictures of him standing there. Um, and he would turn his head and pose and everything. And, and I thought, my gosh, you know, I just cannot believe this has happened. So long story short, uh, the word got out that I had photographed the buck. Uh, Ray Sasser at the Dallas Morning News did a story about it. Uh, AP Press picked it up. It went nationwide. Uh, and I, I kind of went from a, a nobody to a somebody um, overnight. And the deer ended up being, we found his sheds later on that year. And he ended up being the largest buck that had ever been photographed at, at that particular time. Um, there may have been some shot of some buck that, you know, maybe he was bigger, but nobody was ever able to prove how big the deer was. He ended up scoring 236 uh, uh, gross and netted 224, which I think put him like in the, at that time, in the top five deer or top, may have been the top three deer ever uh, in Texas at that particular time. He was way up in the, in the record book. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of how uh, the story uh, of my career uh, got started. Uh, yeah. Buckmasters picked the picture up, uh, gave me my first national cover, uh, wrote my first story uh, there. Um, and then things just kind of snowballed after that. I couldn't shoot pictures fast enough. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, I, I have, I have questions. Cause like, I think today we all take deer, whitetail deer for granted here in this country because there's 34 or 5 million of them and deer yeah. everywhere. Right. State yeah. of Texas has like 5 million or something like yeah, that. Yeah. At least <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a big number. So, um, like when you start finding, like when you start seeing these deer and finding these deer, uh, especially in that refuge area, is it, I mean, are there other people in there? Is it, is it like, or was it just you or, I mean, it like. It was just, there was nobody there. Nobody knew anything about this place. Wow. And of course the, uh, uh, we, we, Ray Sasher wrote the article. We wanted to keep it quiet about where he was. And he was one hour north of Dallas. I mean, it was not that far at all. He was, uh, Texoma is right on the Oklahoma-Texas border. So when we wrote the article, uh, we thought, well, we tell the truth, but we would mislead people at the same time. So we said the deer was within three hours of Dallas. Yeah. And he was within three hours of sure. Dallas. And so everybody started looking toward East Texas where they were starting to grow some big deer and out west toward Throckmorton and Albany out in that area, Breckenridge, and of course down toward the south a little bit. And people would ask me, you know, where he was. And um, for the longest period of time, you know, I wasn't gonna say anything because nobody, nobody knew where he was, uh, except the locals knew about him, but they weren't gonna talk. Uh, and I didn't want anybody finding him. Um, and occasionally I'd be with a group of whitetail experts and stuff, you know, in Texas, maybe a Texas trophy hunter show or something. 
And, uh, you know, somebody would say, come on, George, tell us where the deer is. And I'd say, oh, okay, he's, he's up on Lake Texoma. Yeah. And they'd go, oh, you're full of it. There ain't no deer up there, you know? And I'd say, okay, you know? So even if I told them the truth, they didn't believe me. Yeah. But there was, there was nobody photographing deer there um, because it was a wild environment. And at that time, I didn't know about people raising deer. I didn't know what a pen deer was. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody even asked me a question one day. Uh, and I was so naive about this. Uh, this guy said, well, where are you shooting your pen deer at? And in my mind, I quickly started going through mm -hmm. all the species of white-tailed deer, you know, white-tailed mule deer, coos, key deer. What's uh, a pen deer? <laughs> white-tailed. And I said, what's a, what's a pen deer? Yeah. He kind of laughed. He goes, a deer and a pen. And I went, what are you talking about? Like and he said, you really did shoot that deer in the wild, didn't you? And I went, well, yeah, where else would you shoot a deer at? And by that time, I was still shooting in the wild chasing these deer. And I didn't comprehend the idea that in photography or professional photography, in order to make a, a living at it, you you really have to shoot a lot of pictures. Uh, the rule of thumb uh, in terms of the money that you make is that you make $1 for uh, every picture in your portfolio. So if you wanted to make $10,000 a year, you had to shoot 10,000 pictures. Mm -hmm. Well, I shoot maybe 10 or 15 pictures a, a week, you know, mm -hmm. maximum, you know, so that wasn't going to work. So when somebody let the cat out of the bag about um, pen deer, I quickly started taking notes. And there were a lot of people that said, man, I wish you had never found out about that because it's over for everybody now. And I was pretty relentless. I found where the, every deer in the country was. People started calling me on the phone uh, that owned bucks and saying, hey, you know, if you can sit out there in the wild and take a picture like that, come to my place and photograph my buck for me. And that's and a, yeah, as you say, that's a great transition uh, uh, point right into some of the the kind of early work that you did um, in, in the farmed industry, in the farming and ranching industry. Um, you know, I got a, I got a, picture queued up here and i i suspect there's there might be a couple people watching that uh could could pick out that uh pick out that buck but tell us tell us about this buck and uh and kind of that entrance into the uh the whitetail the private whitetail market well my first forte into a pen was to photograph a buck named oscar and this was back in 1989 um and he was up in missouri uh, at uh, Gerald Riles's farm. Uh, he was there with another buck called Boss. Um, and the guy that, that owned Oscar at the time gave me permission to photograph him. And so I went up there and, uh, well, I was really pretty amazed by uh, the whole situation. He was in a beautiful pen. Um, it was, you know, typical Missouri. It was right on the Iowa border. So it was just beautiful. It was in the fall. And uh, Oscar was the star of the show at that point. And I don't know how many shots I, I took at, of him on that particular day, but I probably in the next 
five to 10 years. I never did flood the market with pictures. I would only send out a handful of pictures of a buck to a few magazines so that I didn't uh, oversaturate the market so I could sell the pictures for longer. And so I had about a, a five to eight year run on Oscar and probably had 25 to 30 magazine covers, most of those national covers. Uh, there was a lip curl shot. Uh, I don't think I put it in here, but it was right after I shot this particular picture here. Um, he turned around, my wife was with me and he was more interested in my wife uh, than me. And he started lip curling her and ended <laughs> up getting a series of shots. And this is back when biologists were starting to first, you know, talk about uh, Buck's lip curling and stuff. So I get this. Oh, he was about 196, I think, that year. So small by today's standards. Uh, and boy, I mean, he put on a performance. He stuck that lip out, turned that head around, you know, and I got the whole thing. I emptied a whole roll of film on him. And uh, that one particular shot was probably on five or six different national covers over about a 10-year span. And, and, and it still gets published every now and then. Um, it's, it's, I don't think anybody's ever outgrown the shot because it was such, the light was perfect. Uh, the colors in the background were perfect. He was perfect. Um, but he was the first deer that I, that I ever photographed. And of course, most people should recognize Oscar as the great grandsire of High Roller. Mm -hmm. Um, I, his grandson was Magnum 228, who I also photographed. Uh, and then, uh, I think he was the sire of high roll. Um, and then from there, yeah, this is a Magnum 228. He's a little bit older here. Um, most people, he, he doesn't have the kicker time like he had when he was earlier, but he was probably, uh, seven, eight years old when I finally got a chance to photograph him. Uh, another guy in Missouri had, had bought him and, had a couple of other bucks in there with him uh, in three different pens. They didn't have them together. And so uh, I, I got a lot of work off him um, and then had opportunities to photograph uh, bucks really all over the country. I mean, I photographed from uh, right down the street from you in Pennsylvania. Um, spent a lot of time at Eddie Ray Burkholder's back when Eddie Ray was just coming into his own, uh, photographed Thunder when he was, uh, uh, two years old or started when he was two. This picture is when he was three, uh, photographed Blazer, um, and then, uh, got the opportunity to photograph most of Thunder's really great offspring there for about five or six years, Thunderstorm, um, I can't even remember all the names of. Uh, you got Avalanche up there, which was a yeah, Avalanche, of course. Blazers, um, Olympics, yep. And then Avalanche, you know, uh, he became really, a, you know, one of the greatest bucks I think in the industry for that time period. There were more uh, three hundred point bucks out of Avalanche than I think anybody. Uh, one of my favorite was Tonto, and I have a Tonto doe out here in the backyard. Uh, and uh, she's been a great producer for me. Uh, so that's a, that's a line I love. So I've got a lot of, of, of uh, Eddie Ray's uh, uh, bucks on or uh, bloodlines uh, here 
uh, on site. But I, I did, uh, I put a lot of those on uh, national covers. Uh, now I'm going to, I think uh, you had to correct me on the name. Uh, um, oh. I thought it was, uh, it was Soaring Eagle. Yeah, this is Soaring Eagle. Yeah, Soaring Eagle. He was on the, the cover of Field and Stream. A little bit of a funny story on this. It was really, really cold this day. I mean, it was down at zero, and uh, Eddie Ray made me a little hole in the back of the, the feeder area I could stick my lens through, but I had to sit on the ground. I had to sit there for about, oh, an hour and a half, two hours before he finally came out, and I got a picture. Well, while I was sitting there, I kind of melted the snow a little bit, and then it, you know, my butt got cold, and it froze, and froze me to the ground. <laughs> uh, so I had to wave Eddie Ray out of the house to come out uh, and pry me loose from the ground. I couldn't even get up. I literally froze to the ground that day. Um, so even in pen situations, uh, uh, it can be, you know, uh, bitter uh, trying to get some of these pictures. So there's a, uh, I, I'm sure, and I know some, some folks have not seen these particular pictures of uh blazer or thunder or thunderstorm i know i've never seen that uh thunderstorm picture until you you showed it to me um, yeah i think that was a buckmaster's cover back uh boy, was a long time back early 2000s uh 2004 or 5 yeah uh, but that was on the cover of buckmaster's i i love uh i love looking at these deer and like just looking at their hair coats and like everything's perfect on them you know what i mean like he's just He's re he's ready for fall and winter. Obviously, that buck's ready to breed. Uh, just be beautiful animals. There's one uh, one other picture that I, I think is a incredibly famous one is this picture here of uh, of thirty thirty. Um, I actually have it. Yeah, I got it on my wall over there. It's, oh, really? Uh, I have it framed. Yep, I have it framed on uh, on my wall. I got the Jordan buck over here, and um, but this is this is one that uh, a bunch of people I know have have seen. He's probably. He's been on as many magazines and oh, yeah. tags as any other buck alive, bro. I had him on calendar covers, book covers, yeah. products. He's on the uh, he's the buck grub buck is the way a lot of people know him today. Okay, there you go. Yep. Yeah. And you know the that one particular picture. There were two pictures way back then. Uh, Mike Biggs was my biggest competition, so Mike and I battled it out for covers every month. Uh, there were other great photographers out there also that were, were still getting them. So not to infer that Mike and I own the business, but we got a lot of the color covers and he had photographed a, a buck and it was a similar picture. And it was a buck over in Louisiana called Mr. T. Hmm. Um, and at the time uh, before I shot this one, Mr. T was the standard that all photographs were compared against. Well, then I got this particular picture and it changed a little bit. Then it became Mr. T and 3030 uh, became the pictures that other pictures were, uh, you know, measured up against. And in, in some degrees, uh, th there were there were some things that were perfect about the the picture. Yeah, he was centered in, in the picture just perfectly. It's the same distance out from the ends of the antlers. He's in focus from the from his nose to the to his butt, every hair is in focus, but then it begins to blur off in the background. And you get that watercolor scene that you want for 
uh, you know, really great photos where the deer is is showed off. And I, I measured the time frame that I had to take this picture. He ran up to this spot and I have I missed the first shot. I wasn't quite in focus. So I knew what the first shot was. And then he stood there. Uh, I'm running the motor drive full speed, five frames a second. Um, I get, he turns his head, I get two additional shots and he runs off. So I got seven shots in the sequence. <laughs> so this shot, in, in order to get it and get it in perfect photo, in, in perfect uh, uh, focus, I had 1.2 seconds or 1.3 seconds to get all of those shots and then it was over. So, I mean, he ran up and then he was gone. Uh, and I remember looking at the camera, sh shooting film at that time. This was back in, I believe, 1996 or seven. And I remember looking at the camera and going, God, I hope I got that. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew if I had it uh, with that little bit of color right behind him and everything. And uh, I knew what my, my shutter speed and my depth of field was. So I, I knew I was what kind of background I was going to have. I thought that's going to be great if I got that, and uh, and it, it ended up being uh, maybe a signature picture. Um, yeah, I, very very recognizable and a beautiful yeah. a beautiful photo. And I, I just want to I want to chime in because we're all in a digital world today. But, um, you know, I before I started taking any type of pictures, I mean, I I took a few uh, thirty five millimeter pictures before, but like. There was no digital photos back then, you know what I mean, or not, not, not to, not to the degree and caliber with the technology today that we have. So, um, you know, kudos to you on the, on the film rolls. It's just amazing to get quality like, uh, like this. Um, so I want to, I, I, I don't want the the uh, Texas boys to feel bad. We're yeah. a bunch of northern deer, but um, you know, here's here's another beautiful beautiful shot. Obviously, you get a little more. Uh, I think that's a more southern acclimated animal. Yeah, this is down in uh, the hill country, um, and that and believe it or not, that that is a hill country deer that was uh, well fed and taken care of. He was always just a great big eight point. I photographed him for um, three or four years before I ever shot this picture. Um, but this was always one of my favorite pictures of him. I nicknamed this picture Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the nickname that's on it, uh, in, in the title and everything. Uh, but I always thought that was a really, you know, a neat looking picture. Uh, I, I it did get a book cover out of it. Um, but it's kind of a cool picture with that doe sitting there looking around the, uh, Very the drop line and everything. I was going to say the drop time sticking next to your head is, is, uh, is pretty neat. I want to, I want to shift gears just with, um, like knowing we have, kind of this foundation set for you with the out breaking into kind of outdoor photography with Mr. Big on the weed field and, and knowing some of the interactions with those like early foundation sires in the, in the deer industry. Um, I want to, I want to jump forward into um, your kind of current, your current place of, of business today and talk about something that I think is incredibly unique and that is your your outdoor photo studio. So can you walk us through how you went in from, you know, filming some um, 
some of these these foundation sires and just that you know that kind of uh, dream to reality aspect of the the outdoor studio back in the the 1990s you know when i finally learned that you know people photographed in pens the problem with that with commercial photography was that there were other people going into those pens and and photographing the same deer and the editors always wanted exclusivity uh, to images so uh, I kind of got tired, even some of the places where we would photograph uh, wild deer in state parks, uh, there would always be 15 or 20 photographers around and Buck would come out on a field and you'd throw some corn to him and then set up on him. And next thing you know, you had 10 photographers around you. Hmm. Um, so I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to, I had children at that, by that time and I wanted to stop traveling. Uh, I was traveling, I mean, I was gone every week. Um, and so I, I got this idea to uh, uh, build a, a studio outdoors. So I, I bought a, a 21 acre spot that I live on today, um, high fenced it. Uh, I had started uh, collecting some deer three or four years prior to that. And uh, I would uh, either buy them or, or trade working for the breeder shooting pictures. And I, when I make a trade, I'd get me a buck fawn or maybe a doe or something. Um, and so uh, we, we fenced off this one area. And man, I looked for the longest period of time to, to find this place. It, it, the place had to be, it had to be perfect. And, and it's in a, just a, a little isolated area in North Texas. Uh, and it just happens to look like everywhere else except Texas. Hmm. Um, and so when we, uh, it was really dense and, um, you, you couldn't see your hand in front of you when I bought it. So we, we bulldozed it off and we made, we opened up the South side where the, the, the sun always goes, you know, East to West, but to the South. So we opened up the South side, uh, took about half the timber off that and left the North side for the, the deer, uh, to have a sanctuary area. And so uh, I had a few bucks, uh, brought them down just before they closed the border for CWD. Um, and then I, I didn't have a lot at first and, and I ended up losing my two bucks uh, in a, a very, very bad situation. Um, and so that kind of transitioned me to having to breed deer. And so I, I had to uh, work out a, a deal with a, a breeder to rent a couple of bucks. And I bought some does so that I could start over and went back on the road for three or four more years and photographed in pens and uh, uh, went to other places. I do a lot of other things besides whitetail. We can get into that later. I do mm -hmm. grizzly bears, mule deer, elk, everything. Um, so I spent a, a, you know another five years traveling uh, but then I began to get some bucks that were two and three year olds and they, I wasn't breeding for, uh, 300 point deer because you couldn't sell those to a magazine, uh, or you might sell one picture, but then, you know, the jig was up, everybody knew he was in pen. So the, the ideal thing was to have bucks that were 140 to 200, uh, that were in the, you know, uh, the perfect deer was a a 200 to 210 class 
six by six typical that was clean, had a little mass to him. Um, and, and then you just, you just wore him out in, in different environments. And as the years moved on, uh, I began to breed better looking bucks. Uh, the picture up right here is, a, was probably the, the, my most favorite deer I ever bred. His name was Mr. Big Daddy. Um, he, we had TV commercials with him. He was on out, Outdoor Life twice. Um, you know, he, he was all over the place. Every artist in the country wanted to, uh, uh, to photograph him because of, I don't know if you, if you just look right down his nose at his face, he always looked at you that way. He had almost this uh, kind of an arrogant look uh, <laughs> at you when he would look down, he looked down his nose at you. And it was, it was this look of, yeah, this is, this is my place and I own it. These are my does, you know, uh, I'm, I'm the king of the place. And everybody that ever came to my place to visit, their first question was, is there a chance we can see Mr. Big Daddy? And I, yeah, we'll go down and yeah. uh, call him out of the woods and stuff. I, I rattle a corn bucket to bring the bucks out for photo sessions. <laughs> but the, you can see in this particular photo uh, that I, I'm able to take the shots and control the deer's actions. Uh, my wife's way back there in the background and she's moving the deer out of the woods toward me and I'm set up. I'm not hidden. I'm just sitting on a bucket out in the middle of the field and we would get running shots like this. We get these jumping shots and most people would die, most photographers, to get a picture like this one. Um, I mean, if you got one like this in a lifetime, it would be a great shot. I, I kept about 10 bucks uh, in the photo studio and uh, we would go out or I would go out every evening uh, and do like the running scenes or the jumping scenes. Um, and I would shoot, when a deer would jump, I would get seven pictures of the buck beginning his jump and going over the fence. And the middle three pictures would be you know, the cover quality stuff that, that everybody wanted. Um, so I would shoot 10 bucks every day, seven pictures, 70 shots a day, do it seven days a week. And in, in no time at all, I would get 500 jumping shots. And then I would change the scene back up. I'd, I'd take the rail fence or the board fence down and put up a rail fence. And then we'd put logs up, um, just anything. This particular buck right here, uh, he ended up being my, my brood buck um, after I, I lost my first two bucks. This buck was born the next year. And he, we started breeding with him when he was three years old. And he really was kind of a big baby. And um, he, he, was, he was always doing comical stuff. And so he did this one day. Uh, he kept doing it. So I put that little <laughs> hunting sign up and uh, of course he walked right up to it and stuck his head through the fence and stuck his tongue out at me. And I, I got the shot and I, I've never sold that picture, but it's on file with a lot of editors. And uh, they've all said, you know, somewhere we're going to find a spot and plug that in. These were, were uh, this is Dakota. And the, the second buck is the, the type of buck that I tried to breed back then. You can tell he's real heavy. He's oh, six by six mainframe, 
Got a couple of kickers here and there, not real trashy, real massive. Uh, that buck scored about uh, 205 to 210 for about five years in a row. Always looked a little bit different. Um, and in, in the same pen with him, I had about five other bucks uh, that were sons of Dakota that looked just like that other buck right there. Mm. Uh, and so I had a, a great group of animals to work with. This, these are some of my later bucks. This is a two-year-old um, that uh, I bought a, a, a three does from Elwin C when he retired. And I, one of the does is a, a doe named Yellow 601. We'll talk about her a little bit. But this was, uh, she had a pair of twins, uh, or not a pair of twins. She had twins her first year. I bought the doe and then Elwin talked me into leaving them there at the ranch and he would breed them for me. And uh, he said, I'll, I'll select the best sire for each one of these does. And so he bred yellow 601, the dream warrior. Um, and this buck uh, favors dream warrior uh, a whole bunch. Uh, had the double drop times. Um, and he was just a beautiful boy. His name was Mr. C. Um, and um uh, he he he's been the smallest deer uh, out of that doe, but he was a typical. He never grew very non-typical at all. Um, this particular picture, everybody asked me when I started shooting in Wisconsin, and I tell them, "Well, that's not Wisconsin. That's my backyard again." Sure. And uh, you know, depending on which way you turn, uh, it'll look like. Uh, uh, maybe Iowa or Missouri. We, we put in cornfields. Uh, we've put in lakes, creeks. Uh, of course, we do the, the fences. Um, uh, this is um, Mr. Big Daddy. And um, the, the other buck is a uh, three-quarter brother to him. Uh, they were both in a TV commercial together, got on the stand there uh, together. Um, uh, the tree up front, I just went and cut that tree and stuck it in the ground and they came up there and tore it up and then stood there and looked at me like, Hey, go get another, get, get us a bigger tree. You know, made a great picture. Yeah. These, um, these photos are awesome. And just for, for those of you that are listening on the podcast that uh, can't see the, uh, the photos that George and I are going through, uh, you can always hop over to the YouTube channel. It's just North American deer talk. And you can, you can peek through all these. Uh, George was kind enough to, to share all these with me for the show. So I'm just kind of queuing them up and we're looking through them. And if you like looking at uh, big deer, you should check these out. Now, George, I know that, um, I know that you, you had just mentioned um, uh, yellow 601. It kind of struck a chord with me while we were, while we were talking about it. And um, that little, that double uh, drop time buck was what you had mentioned, Mr. C and, if you would just tell us a little bit about this uh, yellow six. She's a, a, a daughter of I appeal that I, I bought from Elwin. Uh, of course, I appeals out of Max Bow uh, XL and PA Geronimo, and then she's Gladiator on the uh, Gladiator Hammer Junior. Who's out of Gladiator on the bottom, and she has just been uh, uh, just a blessing to own. These are the four first four bucks uh, that she dropped, um, we, we lost the next one at, as a yearling and then we lost the next buck as a fawn. And then she dropped 
two sets of twin does. Um, and two of those does are full sisters to blue nine and red 58 in this picture. Blue nine and red 58 are, are brothers and they're out of my uh, book called Solomon's Prophet. Um, but uh, she has she has not dropped a, a cull buck yet. I mean, everything that's come out of her has just been magnificent and they've been good producers. Uh, sea Warriors, uh, he's five in this picture. I think he's, he's coming seven years old this year. Um, and he's, he's probably been the best producer uh, out of the group. I've, I've uh, had some uh, uh, yearlings I had one that scored 250, died of EHD as a, a yearling before he was full grown. We've got another one this year that's 260. Um, and so he's, he's really dropping some really, really great stock. Uh, tremendously massive buck. Um, I mean, the mass on him is just unbelievable. Probably gets that from both uh, Solomon and I appeal because he's mass you know, increases as he goes out, he kind of palmates. Matter of fact, all of my bucks that I breed with are palmated now mm -hmm. from, and they're all from different lines and stuff. But okay. yellow 601, we, uh, we've got a, a coming two year old uh, that we're, we're looking forward to seeing. He's out of my uh, uh, green eight buck, who's a Solomon Tonto. Um, and then uh, we've got a new buck that we, we bred um, three years ago named Twitch, everybody was ragging on me because my deer weren't wide enough. So I thought, okay, <laughs> well, I'll go breed a wide one for yeah. you. Then. The first, the first one I bred, he's uh, 48 inches outside, 36 inside <laughs> at three. And so I always send pictures to everybody and say, is that, is that wide enough for you? Am, yeah. I, am I doing okay here now? <laughs> and so we've got triplet, we got triplet buck fawns uh, this past year out of uh, Twitch um, and Yellow 601. Uh, and Twitch is uh, a FedEx uh, Texas T Maxbo XL. And I forgot what buck, a Rolex hmm. on the very bottom. Um, so he's well-bred sure. and uh, it brings in some, uh, some very interesting genetics into the, the gene pool. Previously, I, I just kind of bred with my own stuff and I've done okay with it. Um, we, we sell everything we want to sell. Um, I don't have to do a lot of advertising. Everything's already, I'm sold out for the next three years, except for maybe some does that I'll select to, to sell. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're hoping Twitch will start throwing some wide bucks and uh, everybody will be happy that I'm breeding <laughs> the right stuff now. Sure. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get too far away from the photography thing. So if we go on a big tangent, uh, you try to bring me back and I'll try to bring you back, but I'm curious, oh. I'm curious to know, uh, because obviously you, you, you raised deer, right. And you, you're into yeah. genetics and like that has captivated you as well. Um, when do you think that happened for you? Like in your mind where you were like, was it because like you talked about the functionality, I guess, or the function of the outdoor studio and you like, you had to get deer for that. But when was it then like, when you were like, well, 
we're going to breed, we have to breed these deer. And then like you get into the genetics and like making cool deer. Like when, do you remember when that happened? Well, originally um, it was just to breed deer for photography. And so I had to put a cap on the size. Mm. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that at that particular time, I was a deer breeder. I was a wildlife photographer specializing in whitetail deer. And uh, I populated this area. It's that the studio is all wild. Um, and so I would say for the first 10 or 12 years of doing that, the only thing on my mind was photography and generating uh, bucks that would that would sell commercially. Gotcha. Um, the, the photography business, I, I still sell work. I still get covers, uh, but it's not like it used to be. You know, I used to get 20, 25 covers a year and I would have maybe a half a dozen companies that I was shooting for. Um, and I'm not going to say I retired, but I'm just not as active in it. Had some health issues, uh, ruined my back um develop cataracts i'm just getting over cataract surgery i can i can actually see you clear on the screen now <laughs> i'm glad so maybe that'll give me a resurgence but about i would say um seven years ago i decided to transition from just doing photography because uh, a buck when i was photographing them they were worth far 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 more money to me as a, a, a photography model than they were to sell them to some ranch right um i don't want to get into numbers but sure there i had bucks that, that over the years maybe over a 10-year period or less maybe over a five-year period probably a five-year period would make me six figures um and i kept 10 of them out there it's incredible um, so Raising deer for photography was extremely uh, profitable for me at that time. Mm -hmm. As it became less profitable, I started uh, collecting more genetics and just kind of transitioned into, uh, I'll just start breeding now. Um, and, and I still have deer out there that, you know, I can make a lot of money off from photographing, um, but I breed I, I get about 20 buck fawns a year. And most of those uh, fawns, uh, I raise them till they're two years old and I sell them to ranches. I keep a couple back uh, as either breeders or for photo stock. Um, but the, the, the transition, probably about the time that uh, just before I got yellow 601, I'd say a couple of years before that, uh, I started getting some other does and, and bucks. I got kind of lucky with some of the deer that I, I got. I, you know, I was on these ranches photographing. So I'd have my eyes on certain genetics uh, and certain crosses that that ranch owner may have. And so I would ask them, you know, can, can I trade you this for uh, this buck fawn over here? And most of, the, most of the people I worked with were glad to do it. They, they liked what I had on my ranch. Uh, they thought it was a fair trade. And so uh, that's how I got my new genetic lines. Um, 
And so I, I would say about seven, eight years ago, maybe around 2015, gotcha. I started looking at myself more as a breeder, um, still a photographer, yep. but I decided to jump in both feet in the breeding industry and see what I could do. Yeah, that's a that's a neat story. I I uh, I, I I was just curious because like it's it's hard. I remember being around deer for the first time and like it's hard not to get that bug especially when you get around other people who are passionate about it and you're just like well i want to do that and of course you are you were already naturally transitioned into it yes and then like how do you stay away and of course you couldn't so that's awesome <laughs> i was in every pen in the country every yeah. breeders program i, I mean yeah i fly on an airplane to to pennsylvania yeah. get in a car and then for two weeks, drive all the way back to Texas and hit 10 or 12 different breeders on the way back. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I was very aware of the breeding industry while I was doing all this. How, however, I will make one little sub note. Yep. Being around all of that breeding and uh, spending time with, you know, people like Eddie Ray Burkholder and lots and lots of other breeders and stuff. When I first started breeding deer, I thought I knew what I was doing. Mm. Man, was I in for a shock. <laughs> I was just like everybody else. It was kind of like I was flying by the seat of my pants. And I have learned a lot over, I've been in breeding deer now for 20, I'm in my 22nd year. Um, uh, so we've done the bottle feeding and everything, worked with the genetics and different crosses and stuff. Um, and I would be the first one to tell you that every single day around here is a learning experience. Mm -hmm. I go out the door and my wife always asks me, what are we going to do today? And I do a drive around and I tell her, I'll let you know when I get back. <laughs> because there's always something, some deer has done this or, um, you know, if you raise deer, you know what I'm talking about. There's right. always something that needs to be taken care of. Everybody's um, nodding their head going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's a learning experience every single day. And the day you think that you know it all, you need to get out of the business. Yeah. Because there's no such thing. A white tail yeah, you're gonna, deer. You're going to get slapped uh, around. Is a, a complicated animal. And um, you're never going to know everything you need to know to take care of them. So true. Um, I want to... I want to uh, wrap up with a very photo specific um, kind of group of questions. While I got while I got the master on the line, I want to I want to get into the photography part um, and maybe work through some pro tips from the pro to folks that can help them with their photography skills. Because and, and it probably chews you up more than it chews me up, but we have such beautiful creatures and we do such a poor job representing them in some cases. So I want to walk through a couple yeah. of these things. If, if, if you don't mind, uh, let's start with, let's start with the low hanging fruit because people can buy gear pretty easy. Right. And the, the a lot of the other stuff is practice. So give us just a, 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 a quick rundown of a, of a setup that you think would be just perfect for a, for a pen environment. Well, I I always tell people to put a, an open area out in, in the front. And, you know, if I get to them early and I think there's somebody that, I, you know, I want to go photograph their deer, I always make sure that that 
that open area is on the south side where we can get that east-west sun because the sunlight when you're photographing your animals is extremely important. You do, you do not want to be photographing your bucks one o'clock in the afternoon. That's a major, major no-no. You want to get in there. You want the sun low. You want the, you want the sun coming in on the face of the deer, lighting, lighting up the tines uh, and, and showing the animal off and putting some good light on. Now, now maybe you're not going to have a color picture of there. It's going to be black and white. It'll still be a better picture. Um, if, if, if you can get the deer in a position where he's on the, the south side and he's got sunlight coming in uh, in the morning, move to the southeast side. In the evening, move to the southwest side and, and always shoot in at that angle. The second thing that, that, that you want the deer to do is that you want the, the deer to line up with you. Um, the, the rule of thumb that if the deer is sideways, you shoot them ver in, a, in a vertical format with the camera, you know, this way. But if the deer turns and faces you, you want to rotate the camera up to vertical and shoot in a vertical format. And the, uh, the vertical format will show the, with the deer facing you, will show off more of what you want um, your customer to see. And that's the deer's antlers. The, the second thing in there is never, never stand up above the deer in photographing always be at the at the very least eye level or below eye level if at all if possible now that that doesn't mean get down and lay on the ground but drop down to one knee and photograph the deer so that you're looking up at an angle like this angles upward will augment the antlers and make them look bigger if you shoot downward you're going to diminish the size of the antlers and make the deer look smaller. So the one thing that made um, my work stand out to editors and probably to deer breeders was the, the fact that it looked a little bit different than everybody else. And it was because I didn't, I shot off my knees and I always tried to stay eye level or lower on the buck and get that, that angle up at them. And, and they just look better that way. That's just just a simple fact. Um, if, if you can if you can get that angle, then great. Now the other thing is study your deer. Every I mean your personal deer. Um, every deer has a, a, an an angle to him that looks better. They're just like people. Everybody's got a a turn you know where they look a little bit better. Or a side they look a little bit better on. Deer are the exact same way. This bucket's up right now. He's a wild deer. Um, and when he looks right at you, you know, he's nothing special whatsoever. He's, he's just a nice buck. He's got a little bit of width to him. He's got nice tines. But when he strikes that 45 degree angle or a little bit more over to the side, he, he lights the picture up. Uh, and, and he really looks great in that particular position. I would watch this buck, um, you know, sometimes I could get on him for an hour and stay and just follow him around. And I would always keep him squared up in front of me, stay down below him, and I would wait for that head turn. 
Mm-hmm. I shot enough pictures of him head on to know that, well, if he's looking at me, he's no good. Right. Get the head turned. What, Another uh, thing that you always okay. want to do, people ask me, what do you focus on? Well, you, you want to put, most cameras today have a little focusing bar uh, that's in the, in the screen. And you want to lay that bar right across the eyes. If you, if you have the eyes in focus, you can get by with murder on the rest of the picture. Uh, the eyes uh, bring life uh, to the picture. Um, and that's really, even with a, a brood buck or anything, you, you want to get the eye in focus. And normally if the eye is in focus, the antlers are in focus, uh, which is you know, the main thing that we're trying to advertise uh, about the deer. Um, so your perspective for the perfect shot is to line that deer up, uh, straight on, uh, watch him, you know, you might, usually I would show up a day ahead of time to photograph a brood buck for a a breeder. I would show up a, a day ahead of time and just go to the pen and watch the deer and watch his head turns. Uh, I wouldn't even take the camera. I would just watch him and, you know, it would be fun. At some point he would turn and I would go, there's that picture right there. Again, seeing the picture before it happens. And then when I was looking through the viewfinder, you know, I could sit there and wait for the pose that was going to show this deer off uh, the best. And I, I think that's what helped me gain access to so many of uh, a, a a lot of the great foundation sires was uh, people knew I had that knack to make a deer look really good and that I could get him on national covers. So they wanted me to come and photograph their buck and do my thing. Um, and it, it's just those little things uh, that are that are secrets uh, to making a deer look great as opposed to maybe he looks, you know, okay, um, but it, but it's not a good angle or you're up above his eyes shooting down at him. Um, you know, m- move down, um, move him out away from the trees as far as possible mm. so that the background blurs. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so, so I'm going to throw a quick, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a quick question in uh, for you. I don't want to go off on a tangent. Uh, uh, Canon or Nikon? Oh. <laughs> Boy. What are you shooting right now? I'm a Nikon man. Okay. I've always been a Nikon man. Gotcha. I've always, uh, I've, I have invited a few photographers uh, to come to the place and for only a handful. And the first question I ask them, uh, you shoot Nikon or you shoot Canon? Yeah. If they say Canon, I'll say, okay. Well, check your camera at the gate because you're not coming in here with that darn thing. Make my deer look bad. I thought you liked that. <laughs> yeah, I'm an I'm an icon man. You know, <laughs> Canon has the edge on light. You you can shoot Canon uh, photos in ridiculously low light, um, but the color in the Nikon is always a little bit richer and better. And it's, it's because of the glass that they use. And they're two totally different. They're, they're both great cameras. They're both great uh, glass. Yep. Uh, if you watch football games, 
uh, if they're in uh, a dome stadium, you look down in the end zone and all of the cameras are white. There are hardly any black cameras down there. Yep. But you go to a college football game that's in a, in a bowl outside and you look down in the end zone and boy, there's a lot of black cameras down there, black lenses. Yep. Um, so I always, I always take a peek when I'm watching a, sure. a college football game. Uh, maybe a, one one specific college football game. <laughs> um, so so my my I, I I'm curious <clears throat> as far as like give us a basic uh, camera lens setup for just basic photography. Like give us the you, you think like a seventy five three hundred or a one hundred three hundred or just give us a real basic setup that you think would be a good kind of home, not a professional homeowner's yeah. kind of rig. Well, let's, let's modify what you just asked and okay. or saying that you can shoot professional looking images with a 80 to 200 lens um, without a problem. It's, it is, that's fine. Um, you do want to stay above 50 milliliters for 50, milli, 50, 50 millimeter lenses. Yep. Um, just because that's just an eye view, you 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 want the camera to do a, to isolate the the deer a little bit. So uh, shooting up, you know, one fifty to two ten with the lens, you know, back up a little bit and isolate the animal. And a lens like that will do fine. You do not need um, a, you know, I, I shoot a camera body that is a four thousand dollar body. You don't need that. The thing's got bells and whistles on it uh, that I never, I, I don't even know how to use them myself. I would never use them. Um, I shoot that lens because it gives me some, some other advantages with the size of the picture and things like that. Uh, but the, the world is full of really good Canon and Nikon bodies uh, that you can pick up in the three to $600 range shoot uh, large megapixel pictures. Um, let's say anything above 12 megapixels up to maybe 28 to 30 megapixels and, or bigger. Um, and, and that's fine. Most people can get by uh, shooting on program mode. Uh, you don't really have to do any, anything fancy. I shoot on program mode, but I know how to manipulate light even in a program mode. So there's some little things that I do to, to tweak a camera that you, don't, you really don't have to worry about that because you're not trying to shoot uh, a magazine cover with it. A, a picture like you have up on the screen, you wanna, this, this picture is slightly underexposed. And the last thing that you wanna do in a picture like this, that, that elk has got white antler tips and you want to keep you some detail in that white. You don't want to do what we call blow out the whites. And you want to keep all the fur that's light colored. And so you, you, you underexpose just a little bit. In most situations, underexposing the picture a little bit is a good thing to do because it will make the colors a little richer. Um, overexposing is always bad. There's, there's no good that can come from an overexposed picture once you blow out the whites and you've lost everything um, in terms of detail out of the picture but you'll notice in in almost all of my images where there's whites like on this moose here on the palms 
that we've kept the color from blowing out uh, and we keep the detail into the whites. Um, you can do that if you're shooting a regular camera by, let's say, uh, you, you, you turn your ISO speed up a little bit. Um, my camera's got a little knob that says plus or minus over on the side, and most cameras have that. And I always shoot at like a minus seven to minus 1.0, which is, means I'm underexposing by about two thirds to one stop. And that will, that'll bring your colors up. It'll keep your details in the animal. So um, if you're a breeder, experiment with your camera a little bit. Find that little plus minus knob over there on the side and, and give it a little negative value to it, but maybe a negative seven, negative five, whatever, and shoot a few pictures of it. Uh, shoot the scene that you're going to shoot your, your buck in and see how it looks. And then you can continue to tweak that uh, until you get uh, a good uh, separation of your, your uh, fur so it stands out so that you, you don't get white spots in it that blow out because of the sunlight. Um, cloudy days also are, are great for photography because you don't have any shadows. Uh, having great light is great, but you also have to contend with shadows and you have to watch that. You don't want to shadow up a deer's face or his antlers while you're, you're photographing him. Uh, so if you have difficulty or you don't have a south facing area where you can go on the east and west side, photograph them on a, on a, uh, a cloudy day and then you eliminate that sunlight. Or on a cloudy day, you can shoot at one o'clock in the afternoon and do fine. The picture you have up right now is one o'clock in the afternoon uh, shot on, on that particular L. Um, so the, uh, you think the, you know, 70 to 200 is just fine or, or that 100 to 300 is just perfect for? Oh, a 100 to 300 can give you better isolation. And uh, by isolation, uh, I'm gonna I'll, I'll talk about the picture you have up. Sure. Um, you, you, you don't want a bunch of busyness uh, back in the background, distracting from the antler. You want that to kind of look like a watercolor. Mm. And the, the larger the lens gets, the, the more of that watercolor look you can get uh, because the depth, of sh the depth of field, how much your, where your focal plane is, how much is in focus, you can shrink it down so that the background blows out and you get this watercolor look in the background and the animal's isolated on that. If you go back uh, just in terms of the, our, our talk to the 30-30 picture, that's one of the things that made that such a great shot was I had one little tree up there um, and back in the background was some beautiful color uh, and it's all it, it just looks like somebody took some watercolor and went back there and, and did the background with watercolor. Um, some people might consider that shot a little too busy just because that tree is back there. I had editors that said they didn't like that particular image because it was too busy. The it's tree makes the busy. photo. I think the tree makes the photo. I, I, I did too. I wanted the it's little oak. bit of splash of color yeah. in there. It's an oak. It's got, you see the color on the leaves. It makes it fall, you know? It, yeah. You know, I went to one seminar when I started my photography. When I figured out I didn't know what I was doing, I went to a <laughs> seminar with these guys. 
And uh, part of it was learning how to operate the camera and I needed all of that. And the second part was the commercial end if you wanna try and sell pictures. And the first thing the guy said, uh, and he was a, a very famous uh, nature photographer, uh, John Shaw, he said, the one thing you have to remember in, in uh, photos is just one thing, he said, red cells. And he said, so a splash of red in the picture will help sell that picture. And you'll notice a, a lot of times in my pictures, uh, I'll go out and pick some sumac trees or something and either put them back in the background or put them up in the foreground, just to add a little splash of red in there. Mm. Because the eye, in, in terms of looking at nature, the eye likes to see a splash of red with that wildlife. It really, it, it warms it up, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, I, I have so many more questions, but I want to save them for another day. Um, would you be willing to come on again and chat with us and we'll talk some more photography? I always like doing this. I would love to come back anytime. I always I, enjoy talking about the, the photography end of it. I appreciate that. Um, Thank you for, for running through some of those pictures. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching, uh, or excuse me, if you're listening, make sure you hop on the, the YouTube show and you can look through a bunch of George's work that we just showed you. Um, George, I appreciate you coming on. We'll talk again soon. And with that, we'll wrap up. Stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.